morning, Crossroads family. The Apostle Paul wrote the following words to the Romans. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. That way, you'll be able to prove or live out God's will, his perfect and pleasing will. Amen? Amen. We've been in a series in renovation. Renovation. And renovation, it means that something is not quite right. Something is falling down or or broken or, or not all that it could be. And we have to put in work in order to see results, in order to see transformation occur. And God gives us some work to do. He says, you need to focus your minds on something other than what you have been focusing your minds on. And that takes work, that takes effort, that takes choices, does it not? We live in a world where they want you to think a certain way. They want you to begin to pursue a certain avenue with your life. And God says, I have something else in mind for you. Will you choose my way? And so renovation, we all need it, do we not? Have any of you guys arrived? Any of you guys wake up and look in the mirror and just go, wow. Well, I haven't experienced that. Maybe, maybe when you're 18, maybe when you're 19, like my son Josh, right? But we see the fact that we're deteriorating on the outside, but, but God's less concerned with that. He's more concerned with what's happening on the inside. And man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks where? At the heart. And the gateway to transformation of the heart begins in the mind. It begins in the way that we think. You know, we've been uh, looking at the book of Revelation on Wednesday night. How many are part of that? Yeah, how many have enjoyed it? Whoa, a few hands went down. No, I'm just kidding. No, we, we've, been, uh, we've been diving into God's revelation. It's beautiful. It's, it's encouraging. It's filled with hope. Because God knows the end of the story. God is in control of the end of the story. Amen? And we have an opportunity to dive in and see the realities that are going to take place and where our future lies as children of God. Uh, it's a shameless plug for our class, but if you, if you haven't been c- coming to Community Under Construction on Wednesday nights, it's not too late to join in. It's not just our class that's offered. There's several other classes offered each Wednesday night, and we also share a meal before that. Um, over at American River Church, just about a mile away from here. It's been a great moment for us to connect with other believers in the community. And so I encourage you, if you haven't taken part in that, this would be a good opportunity this Wednesday. If you're available, come, join in. But in the, in the book of Revelation, we're looking at things like the rapture of the church. And this morning, I want to start with a passage that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, Before we're going to read our text this morning, he had sent a letter to them prior to the letter that we're studying, 2 Corinthians. If there's a 2 Corinthians, there must be a 1 Corinthians. So in 1 Corinthians, he wrote these words to the church. Listen, brothers, I tell you this, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, and corruption cannot inherit incorruption. Listen, I am telling you a mystery. 
We will not all fall asleep. We will not all die. But we will all be changed. In a moment, in the blink of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. Literally renovated, transformed. For this corruptible must be clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible is clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place, death has been swallowed up in victory. Can I get an amen? Amen. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Now the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Are those powerful words? Are those encouraging words as a church? Do you understand what Paul's saying here? He's saying a couple of things. He's saying, number one, we can't go to heaven looking like this. You realize that? That this form in which we live, this tent, so to speak, in which we live now, cannot inherit what's to come in eternity. We must take on a different form. We must be transformed in our outer person into an immortality body, an immortal body, a body that can go through walls, a body that doesn't, isn't conformed to the laws of physics. Like the risen Jesus. If you're not sure what that looks like, read the Gospels. Read just the last few chapters where Jesus is risen, and how his body behaves. That's the body that we get to inherit one day. But he's also saying something else in this passage to the church. He's saying not everyone is going to go through death as we know it, but all of us are going to be transformed. So what's that all about? That means that there's a day coming where Jesus is going to come in the clouds for his church. Hallelujah? And that anyone on the earth at that moment that has Jesus as their Savior will be enraptured, will be taken up in to be with Jesus. And in that moment, in the twinkling of an eye, you will get that transformed body. You will still die, so to speak, but it'll be like that. And you will be transformed. And everyone who has died who has received Jesus Christ will be caught up as well. And we'll be receiving that new body as well. So whether we're in the grave or whether we're alive and remain, in that day, at the moment of Christ's appearing, we will all receive transformation. We'll be fully renovated. Amen? Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. So, so Paul, is he had already written that to the church. And of course, Paul was hoping that he'd experience what he just wrote. He didn't know the timing of when Jesus was coming back. But when Jesus had left the earth, he had ascended into heaven. He had said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back so that you can be where I am. That's the goal of Jesus. He's the, bride, he's the bridegroom, and he will be coming for his bride. So he is up there preparing a place. We don't know how long that's going to take. Obviously, it's been a little while. 
in terms of earthly years. But in Paul's day, it was also a little while. They had spent several decades awaiting Jesus' return. And because Jesus didn't tell them exactly when that might happen, they were all hopeful, as we are today, that it would happen in their day. And so Paul had written the church, and the church got very excited. The church said, yes, come Lord Jesus. This life, and all of its trouble, and all of its mess, we want to get out of here. Well, some years go by, and Paul's body begins to decline, and the church has people that have passed away, and there becomes some discouragement that begins to creep into the equation. Can you understand that? Jesus had made a promise, and that promise had been delayed. Seemingly, we're not on God's timetable, are we? When I receive a promise, I want it to happen tomorrow. Amen? But love is patient. We have to wait. God's love is immense. So what do you think his patience is? It's very long-lasting, right? And it says that in the Bible that why is, he being, why is he being patient with this world? Why is he delaying his return? He's doing it so that everyone might come to repentance. For everyone to know the truth. To come to a knowledge of the truth. To have an opportunity to receive the grace, the forgiveness, the hope that you and I sitting in this room get to enjoy. Who do you think is the ambassadors that he wants to send? Dennis prayed about it. It's not just missionaries on the mission field. It's all of us in this room. To people all around us. We, we carry the message as Kurt taught in jars of clay. Where's your little clay jar? You took it back. Yeah, I guess it's gone. It's in your office probably, right? But it's true, right? We carry it around in jars of clay. We're broken vessels, are we not? We're broken and yet God's light shines through the cracks. In our weakness, his strength is revealed. So we go to um, our passage this morning, and it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. But unfortunately, it's one of the worst chapter divisions I've ever seen in my life. So we're going to go back a few verses, because I think the thought begins in chapter 4, in verse 16. So let me read that, and then we'll continue into our passage this morning, beginning at chapter 5, verse 1. 2 Corinthians 4.16, even though our outer person is being destroyed, this is Paul speaking, even though our bodies are falling apart, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction, in other words, we face trouble in this life, do we not? But it's only for a moment. It's producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. For we know that if our temporary earthly dwelling, he's speaking of his tent. Everybody point to yourself and say, I got a tent. Guess what that tent is? It's your temporary earthly dwelling. Some tents look a little better than others. But guess what? In general, our tents are not very attractive, right? Our tents have their issues. We know that if our temporary earthly dwelling is destroyed, 
It comes to ruin. We're all facing that reality, by the way, right? Death is undefeated in this world. It's coming for all of us. We have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in the heavens, not made with hands. Think about that. We have a new building, not just a tent, but a beautiful structure made by God, awaiting each one of us. Indeed, we groan in this body, desiring to put on our dwelling from heaven. How many want that heavenly body? How many groan in this body? So you relate with Paul here. Verse 3, since, we, since when we are clothed, in other words, when we put on that new heavenly body, we will not be found naked. It's not like our tent falls apart and we're just standing in the woods going, Whoo. That isn't the reality. Our tent goes down and immediately we're clothed with a new beautiful building that's made in heaven for us. We will not be found deacon. Indeed, we groan while we are in this tent, burdened as we are, because we do not want to be unclothed. We do not want to just die and have no hope, but we want to be clothed, transformed in the glorious body that he has for us. So that mortality, mortality means that we face death. That mortality may be swallowed up with life. Life eternal. Life everlasting. Never face death again. Amen? This is what Paul writes the church. Paul was a tent maker. You can read about it in Acts chapter 18. His salary from the church just didn't cut it. People weren't tithing. People weren't supporting his ministry very well, so he had to go out and use what God had given him. And he was a, quite a skilled tent maker. So Paul was very familiar with making and designing tents. So it, does it make sense that he would relate that in his writing? He relates our bodies to a tent. Now tents aren't very attractive sometimes, are they? And tents sometimes are folded up, they're temporary structures, right? And then you move on to somewhere else. It's very similar with our flesh. Our flesh is going to be taken down at some point, and we're going to be transferred somewhere else. This is not our permanent home. And that's my point this morning from the text. This world, it's a confidence that Paul had. This world is not our home. Amen? Amen. Then why, why, are, there, why are there some of us Christians who act like it is? Why is it that we begin to invest everything into this life? Why is it that our resources and, and, and our efforts and everything is centered around creating something for here and now? Do we believe, like Paul, that this world is truly not our home? Paul had taken a beating in his body. He had suffered. He knew what it meant for his tent to be ruined. Listen to this, his own testimony, 2 Corinthians, later on in this book, we'll get there, but I'm just going to read, starting in verse 11, uh, or chapter 11, verse 24. Five times I received 39 lashes from the Jews. That's getting beat in the back with a whip. 39 lashes, because they always thought, when you get 40, you're going to die. He had received that punishment from his own people 39, or five times. 
Three times I was beaten with rods by the Romans. Once I was even stoned by my enemies. Three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent a night and a day in the open sea, adrift, afloat, sharks surrounding him. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the open country, dangers on the sea, and dangers among false brothers. Labor and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold, and lacking clothing. Paul had been through it. And he did it all for the testimony of a man who came and gave his life so that he could forgive sins, so that he could reconcile the world to himself. All Paul was doing was sharing that good news with people. And yet his tent was being destroyed because of it. So Paul gets to this section, and he's writing to the church, and the church has its own concerns. Our bodies are starting to fall apart. Matter of fact, some of our people have actually died. Paul, what news do you have for us? Paul goes, let me tell you, I understand my body's falling apart too. And yeah, I desire, I desire to be in heaven. But let me give you some encouragement. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul writes these words to the church in Rome. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Wait a second, Paul, you have so much suffering. Yeah, but you don't understand. My suffering is nothing compared to the glory that awaits. Is that a perspective? Next time that we, you know, get called a name or mistreated in some way on this earth, think about the glory that awaits. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Even the earth is groaning. And not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the firstfruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for, ado- waiting for adoption. It's a beautiful picture there, right? Somebody who's like, man, I can't wait till somebody adopts me. That's what Christ is going to do in our lives. The redemption of our bodies relates it to that idea of receiving the glorious body, the renovation of our bodies. Verse 24, now in this hope we were saved. Yet hope is that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. That should be our attitude. We eagerly So it's not wrong to say, man, I can't wait for heaven. You're eager, right? Can't wait for that glorious body. But we wait for it with what kind of attitude? With patient endurance, right? It's not our timetable. It wasn't Paul's timetable. He could have said, I I just quit. I'm ready to have my glorious body. I'm jumping off a bridge. That wasn't Paul's attitude. Paul's attitude is it's God's timetable, not mine. I wait for it with patience. What home are you investing in? What home are you investing in? The words of Jesus, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. What home are you invested in? 
verse 5. And the one who prepared us for this very purpose is God. God prepared you for the purpose of receiving a new body, an immortal body. You're going to be in eternity with God. I can't explain all the plans that he has for you because he didn't reveal them to us. But he has plans for every one of us and they're eternal plans. They never end. We're going to have journeys. We're going to have adventures. We're going to have amazing forever roles with the God of the universe. That's what he intended for us to enjoy. I think of it a little bit like you plant a little seed. My, my, my wife does a lot of gardening in the backyard, and she plants these little seeds in the soil, right? And they're in that soil for a little bit of time. But then they take and they sprout and they, and they produce an amazing harvest, and, and, and that's the part of the life that really is exciting, right? Well, think of it this way. Our lives on this earth is like the seed in the soil, right? Are we cultivating it? Are we... Are we are we feeding it? Are we watering it? Because God wants to create something beautiful in and through us that's going to last, that's going to be enjoyed forever. The Holy Spirit dwells in the believer's body. And the one who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a down payment. It's a beautiful thing, huh? He gave us the Holy Spirit as a deposit or a down payment. I want to read a couple other verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, this is, this is another time he's mentioned the same concept. It was earlier in his letter, verse 20. For every one of God's promises is yes in him, Christ Jesus. Every one of God's promises is a yes in Christ Jesus. Therefore, the amen. What does the amen mean? So be it. Let it be so. Guaranteed. It's going to happen. The guarantee it's going to happen is also spoken through him by us for God's glory. We speak the amen in this world. Now it is God who strengthens us with you in Christ and has anointed us. He has also sealed us and given us the spirit as a down payment in our hearts. The book of Ephesians, he writes about this same concept to the church in Ephesus, verse 13 of chapter 1. When you heard the message of truth, the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, of your salvation, and when you believed in him, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He is the down payment of our inheritance for the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Let me ask you this. How do you receive the Holy Spirit of God? How do you receive the Holy Spirit of God? It's when you believe the good news about what Jesus Christ has done for you. That's the only way. Jesus left heaven. He came to earth. He lived a life of perfection that you and I cannot live. He took his perfection and all of the Godhead and he threw himself on the cross and he said, this is how I will redeem mankind. I will purchase them back because my innocent blood will be shed for their guilt. He made an exchange on that cross and he said, for anyone who's willing to admit that they're a sinner, that they have offended God with their lives and their actions, and they will confess that. They will turn away from that and they will say, God, save me. I need your salvation. 
It's at that moment that you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. It's that moment when you give him your heart and you humble yourself before him that he puts in you his Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing what's to come. Amen? Amen. Amen. You know, the word down payment here is an interesting word. It means, in the modern Greek, it's literally the word that means engagement ring. Today, if you were going to get married in Greece, you would say, I'm going to go buy a down payment for my bride. The Greek word that's used in the text here, the modern word, literally means engagement ring. So when Jesus gave us his Holy Spirit, what do you think that meant? It meant that he said, we're engaged. We're engaged. And there's a guarantee from the bridegroom that when he gives you the engagement ring, what is he promising is going to happen soon? There's going to be a wedding. And there's going to be a wedding where we get to be united with him forever. We await that day. That day is in heaven. That day is in our glorious body, not this broken down tent. You know, over 25 years ago, I gave my wife, my beautiful wife, who's serving in children's ministry. She didn't just not come this morning. She is over in children's ministry, but I gave her a wedding ring, an engagement ring. And I I have a picture. I think I'm going to put it up on the thing. This is where we were at. I was in college at that time. Anybody recognize this city? Yeah, this is the city of Seattle. And that's, that's exactly how I remember it in my mind. That ferry ferries people and cars and vehicles between Seattle, the port of Seattle there, and Bainbridge Island. I was a poor college student. All day long, I was looking. I had the ring. And I was looking for an opportunity, the right moment, to present it to her. You see, some people might think Amy's not very special. Right? What's so special about, what's so extraordinary about her? But for me, I saw a masterpiece. For me, I saw the one and only, right? And so I was excited. I had gone and I had sacrificed. You know what I did when I was in college? I had a savings account and I had to buy an engagement ring. I drained my savings account. It was gone. I was a broke man. But I was a happy broke man because I gave it all to the one that I wanted to be with. And you know, I humbled myself because on that ferry, on the way back to the city, it looked like that. It was November 15th, 1997, a clear day. It was cold, but it was clear in Seattle. And the full moon was over the back of the city, just like that. And I was on that ferry, and we were on the top deck, and I I was shivering and freezing, and I gave her my coat because she was up there with me, and I dropped down on a knee. And I said, Amy... You're my one and only. You're my love. Will you marry me? And I presented her with an engagement ring. Now listen to me very carefully. Jesus has done that to each one of us. Do you realize that when he looks at you, he sees a masterpiece? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says, We are God's workmanship, masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus. He doesn't just see what other people see. 
he sees you and he goes, I love you. I can transform you into a masterpiece. Just let me. Oh, you want to talk about giving all? I emptied my savings. God emptied heaven. God came in flesh. Jesus Christ came to this earth. He humbled himself. He took on human form. And he went to a cross. He gave it all. And he got down. I got down on a knee. Jesus got up on a cross. That's his proposal to you and me. So I have a question for you this morning. How have you responded to Christ's proposal? How have you responded to Christ's proposal? That cross stands there as a symbol of his offer of forgiveness of sins and of one day being with him forever in heaven. How have you responded? Ah, uh, he's a nice teacher. I, whatever. That was a moment when I was down on my knee. I was a little scared. Why? Because Amy has all the power in that moment. She could go, you're crazy, and walk away. Right? She could go, nope, not good enough for me. Right? She could say anything. But thank God she said what? She said, yes, amen. Amen. And the wedding day was set. We were on our way together. Have you said yes to the proposal? Today is an opportunity to say yes. Now is the time of God's favor. Let today be the day of your salvation. There's a prayer team. Raise your hand if you're on the prayer team. See these folks with their hands up? If you have not said yes to the proposal, please see one of them after the service. Nod if you had your hand up, if you're willing to talk and pray with somebody to help them say yes to the proposal. Amen. Amen. Second question I have in this is, are you honoring your engagement ring? Are you honoring your engagement ring? Some of you guys have said yes. Hopefully a lot of you have said yes to the proposal. My question to you is, the bridegroom's away. It's almost like I think about a military couple where they get engaged and then the guy has to be sent off for duty, right? How does the engaged woman conduct herself while he's away? Is she faithful? Is she focused and her thoughts are fixed on him? Or is she distracted in this world and becomes lured away to pursue other loves and lovers? How are we doing with our engagement? How are you doing? We wait. The bridegroom's coming. How will he find his engaged one? I pray that he finds us faithful. Amen? Verse 6, we're going to close up this morning with the following. Verse 6 of chapter 5, 2 Corinthians. So we are always confident and know that while we are at home in the body, while we are at home in the body, that's right now, we are away from the Lord. Is that true? Yes. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We know that this world is not our home. We know that what happens in the unseen world is more important than what happens in the seen world. Are you hearing me? 
We walk by faith, not by sight. Oh, but I can figure everything out. I have science. Really? No, you have revelation is what you have. And God has revealed what's true. Do you trust him? Do you walk by faith? And we are confident and satisfied to be out of the body and at home with the Lord. In other words, if we leave this body, we're going to be at home with Jesus. There is no intermediary state. I can't even say the word. There is no purgatory. There is no, like, place that we go when we die that is away from God. No. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. We're either in this body and we're walking by faith, not by sight. Or the moment this tent is taken down, we are taken up with Jesus in our spirit. And we're with him. We're present with the Lord. Therefore, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim, this is our goal, is to be pleasing to Jesus, to him. For we must all appear before the tribunal. Another word for tribunal is judgment seat of Christ. So that each may be repaid for what he does in the body, whether good or worthless. Number three, confidence number three. Faithfulness will be rewarded. Faithfulness will be rewarded. Write down a couple other passages. I don't have time to to read them this morning, but Romans chapter 14, starting at verse 10 through 12. Same concept. Paul writes to the church in Rome, same idea. We're going to appear before Christ one day. Now listen to me very carefully. This word judgment seat, this word tribunal, was the Greek word bima. That's where the idea of the bima seat judgment comes from, right? But what was the bima seat in ancient Greece? Well, it was the place in the town center where speeches were delivered by officials and by by dignitaries. They would gather the people together in the town square and they would get up on the bima seat and they would orate or give a speech about something important that people needed to know and hear. It was also where they would judge, where they would hand out judgments. But here's something cool. The Greeks had something called the Olympics. You heard of this? They also would use the Bema seat as a place to award the contestants that competed in the games every year. The winners would receive their rewards in front of the whole town at the Bema seat. That's the picture here. This is not being judged for our sins. This is not the great white throne judgment that will happen at the end of all history, where sins will be judged. This is, what did we do with our salvation? What did we do with the forgiveness that we received in Jesus Christ while we were still on this earth? Did we invest in the things that are eternal? Or did we waste our time? There will be a moment where we'll be judged before Jesus, even as believers. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He wrote this previously in his previous letter. Verse 11. We sang about this. Stephen did a great job this morning with his team. For no one can lay any other foundation than that that has already been laid down. And that foundation is who? 
Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on that foundation, however, we're allowed to build with gold, silver, costly stones, or wood, hay, and straw. Each one's work will become obvious, for the day will disclose it. What day? The day that Paul's talking about right here in our text. The day of the Bema seat judgment. That's the day that it will become obvious if you built on the foundation of Jesus Christ in your life with valuable things, things that will last, or things that will be burned away. Things where you invested not in eternity, but things where you invested in something that was worthless. And what's interesting here is the judgments won't just be the actions, they'll be the motives behind the actions. Because who looks at the heart? You're like, but I give to the poor. Well, yeah, you also blow your trumpet when you do it. God knows the heart, right? Do the things that you're doing in secret, and then you'll be rewarded. Each one's work will become obvious, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, it will be lost, but he will be saved. Listen carefully. Are you judged at the Bema seat and your life thrown into hell? No, he says right here, he will be saved, but the work will be lost. Yet it will be like an escape through fire. My final challenge to you this morning as we we close is this. In what areas do you need to be more faithful? I think we all have to do an evaluation. I don't think any of us are perfect in our faithfulness. There's room for improvement. Amen? Amen. Where can we be more faithful in investing the things that God has given us into things that are going to matter for eternity? Whether that's money, whether that's time, whether that's talent, What are you doing? Are you serving children like my wife this morning? Will that last? Amen, it will last. You'll receive rewards in heaven because the children ain't going to give you any rewards. Right? Maybe you're on the greeting team and you're faithful in that ministry. Do you think Jesus sees that, sees your heart behind that? Well, guess what? This church needs more children's workers. And this church needs more greeters. And this church needs you to step forward. And say, I want to invest in things that are going to matter for God's kingdom. Are you being faithful in your engagement to the king? And the last question I leave you with is this. Are you willing to take the first step? Maybe you've identified, man, I need to be more faithful in this area of my life. Are you willing to take this first step? Maybe the first step is to identify Or seek counsel as to what the first step should be. Will you do that this week? Today? Maybe it's you're like, man, I need to to start investing my time better. I need to start, I need to get rid of this idol out of my life. Right? Because I need to be uh, waiting faithfully for the bridegroom. And not be pursuing other lovers. What is it that God, I can't read your heart. I don't know your life, but God does. What is he asking you to do? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, God, we just thank you for your word this morning. Thank you, God, that you want to do a renovation in each one of us. You're not done with us yet. God, thank you for that engagement ring, the Holy Spirit, the deposit, the down payment that guarantees us what's to come. God, what a beautiful picture. When our tent is done on this earth, we're going to have a glorious building from heaven that we're going to, that's going to be a part of who we are. A building that will never fade, never have any issues, that will last, it's designed to last for eternity. Immortality. God, thank you for that. Such a gift. We don't deserve it. But you, through your grace, you love us and you want to give us good things. So God, as we wait patiently on this earth, in this tent, as we groan for, for that day, and as we wait patiently for it, God, help us to do so in a way that is faithful, in a way that is investing for you. God, we give you praise and glory this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.